You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. All right, Northway family, so good to see you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm so glad you're online with us here this morning. Uh, as we try something new here at Northway, we've been pre-recorded since March and then dropping those on Sundays, and now we are live streaming. And again, thank you for your incredible patience as we encounter some technical difficulties. We have an amazing crew here that has worked tirelessly on, on this, and so, so grateful for our staff and our volunteers. Just good to be with you. I haven't, we are, we're coming live from inside our gym, kind of our altered worship center, and I have not been in here to preach since March 1st. And so it's a little surreal being back in here. The only thing that's missing right now is you. And so we long uh, to have our gatherings here as, as soon and as safely as possible. We'll give some updates on that here coming soon. But in the meantime, I have waited an even longer time to say these words. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We've been waiting to be in this series for a long time. I'm excited it's finally here. We are going to spend about probably the next year and a half or so working our way through one of the most central and essential books in your entire Bible. And that's not to say that the, all the scripture isn't inspired and useful. Of course it is. But this particular letter in the New Testament is so significant. Um, it is literally going to speak and answer every essential question that you have concerning God, concerning man, concerning Christ, concerning sin, concerning salvation and the new life that we have in Jesus. It's not going to hit every question you have, but it's going to hit every essential question concerning those things. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said of this book, this letter, that this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin, the great Bible teacher, once said, when one gains a knowledge of this book, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures in Scripture. This book is so essential. In fact, Martin Luther got saved reading through the letter of Romans. John Calvin got saved through reading through the letter of Romans. John Wesley got saved through reading through the letter of Romans. Augustine got saved reading through the letter of Romans. Even uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, one of the most influential and widely published books outside of the Bible that's out there, was written after and in light of the book of Romans. And so when it comes to this work, it's been said that every, every Western revival that we've seen has started, think about the first great awakening, second great awakening, go on and on, have started either through a teaching of the book of Romans or a re-emphasizing of the book of Romans. And you go, why? Why is this book so significant? It's because it centers around the most essential thing pertaining to life as we know it, and that is the power of God to save, to save the seemingly unsavable through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the reason why, in fact, if you're there in Romans, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. If you want a theme for the book of Romans, if there's any two verses that represent what Romans is about, it's in verse 16 and 17 when Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the word good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And here he says, for in it, in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And, and so right here out of the gate, Paul is going to argue that the one primary thing that man needs that we do not have and do not have the ability to purchase or earn is the righteousness of God. Like what we need is the righteousness of God. You and I need that righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness that comes by God's gift through grace that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. It is only if it it weren't for God's mercy and grace and interceding, you and I left to ourselves would be dead in our sins, but God in his mercy has offered us the free gift of eternal life that now through the work of Jesus on the cross gives us a righteousness that declares us innocent and washes us white as snow to stand before him in his presence. Now, you need to understand this idea of salvation by grace apart from works, which Romans centers around, that was not only a foreign idea in the original Roman empire that Paul was writing in, but it was also deemed a heresy. You see, the Romans believed that if there was such a person out there who would receive merit from a singular God that was given to them by grace and not by works, that that person would simply grab their hell insurance and then go live however they want and they would be the worst of citizens. They would be a menace to society because they could have the, the worst problem solved and then go live however they want and destroy culture. And that was how Rome viewed the threat of Christianity and the Christian gospel in their day. And so Paul is gonna write in defense of that. Paul's gonna say, if that is your view of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the life of a Christian, you don't understand the gospel. This thing is greater than we can even imagine. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you just a bit of an overview of the book of Romans. I wanna walk you through very quickly these 16 chapters and what they're gonna be like for us. And then we're gonna spend our time here this morning just briefly looking at the first seven verses. But here's what Paul's gonna do. Paul, starting in chapter one, is gonna write in defense of the gospel. And he's gonna literally use a a literary technique known as diatribe or rhetoric. He is going to ask and assume the question that you're gonna ask, ask it and answer it before you even have a chance. He's gonna anticipate every argument that's coming with the gospel and he's gonna speak to it. And so every chapter in the book of Romans is gonna stack like Legos, one after the other on top of each other. And Paul is going to begin with the idea right out of the gate in chapter one, that you and I, apart from God's intervening in our lives, are utterly condemned before God because of our sin and we are destined to hell. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was gonna write a best-selling book, that's probably not chapter one for me. Is hey, welcome to my book. You're all going to hell. That's not a book that I would probably write, but here's why Paul's doing that. And here's why he's gonna start this way. The idea, and let me ask you this. Have you ever asked this question? Because I know I have. How is it a loving God can send a good person to hell? You ever asked that question? I know I've asked it. I know that's the question a lot of my lost friends have been asking. How is it this loving God that you say is so loving can take somebody like my grandmother or my sister or a sibling or a friend who maybe they haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they've lived an upright life. They've contributed to the good of society. And then they're gonna get to their end of their life and say, because they didn't trust in Jesus, that they're cast off into eternal hell forever apart from the presence of God. Have you asked that question? I know I have, but again, 
here's the thing about the scriptures. The scriptures never actually ask that question. That question is nowhere in the Bible. The argument that Paul's gonna ask is not how can a loving God send a good person to hell? Paul's question is how can a holy God allow a sinful person into his presence? And this is why the good news that he's gonna share in Romans is so good. But when you and I begin with the assumption that we are good and entitled and deserving of God's presence, Paul's gonna come in in chapters one through three and he's gonna ask the question, where did you get your definition of good? As compared to what? So let me do it this way. If I were to stand before you right now and make a claim this morning that Shea Sumlin is the greatest basketball player that has ever played on planet earth, that would be a pretty lofty claim. And your question to me after you got done laughing at me would be, where did you get that standard? What, why would you say that you're the best? And I'd go, well, let me tell you what it was like this past week to set up a goal in my driveway and sit down with my 10-year-old daughter, lower the rim to eight feet and just dunk on her all day long. And I crushed her, 250 to nothing. She didn't have a chance. Every shot she put up, I'm swatting that sucker. It's out of here. Therefore, I am the best basketball player that's ever lived on earth. Like you would look at that and laugh at me because, okay, you got your standard wrong. Let's trade out your 10-year-old daughter and let's put in LeBron or better yet, let's go to the real goat, Michael Jordan. Let's put in Michael and he's on that day. You play him, you're not so good anymore. And so that is the idea. That's exactly what Paul is coming at. This is how we play God, is we wanna lower the rim on God and we wanna raise the rim on our own righteousness and why we feel entitled to him. But when you understand the standard of your righteousness is not other people and it's not your own works, it's the holiness of God. Only then will you realize, as Paul will show us in chapters one through three, how woefully short we fall of the holiness of God and how because of our sin, we stand condemned and deserving of his wrath towards our sin. And Paul's gonna argue that both for the Jew and for the Gentile all the way to chapter three, verse 20. And if Romans ended right there, we would need some mass counseling up in this church right now because that would be the most depressing intro to a book we've ever read. But Paul's gonna say, you're not done yet. Wait till we get to chapter three, verse 21 because the question is that's brewing within us by the time we get to 320, when we dismantled every argument for our own righteousness is where then can our salvation come from? If I can't save myself, then how can I be saved? And Paul's gonna say, I'm so glad you asked. Chapter three, verse 21, all the way through chapter five, Paul's gonna show that God has provided a way. He has raised up a perfect substitute for you and for me. One who is able to embody perfect righteousness and obedience to God in a way that we could not. And he willingly offered up his own life on a cross as a sacrifice and substitute for us, dying in our place, absorbing the justice of God that our sin demanded. And in putting our faith in him has now given us the great exchange by granting us the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputing that righteousness to our account as if we had earned it ourselves, but rather being received as a free gift of faith in Jesus's work. And so when you receive that gift and you transfer your trust from your own righteousness to the righteousness of God, when that happens, the end result, Paul's gonna argue it in chapter five, is that your salvation is secured. 
and your salvation can never be taken away from you. Which then leads to the next question, and this was Rome's question. Okay, so you're saying that you don't have to work for your salvation. It's given freely through Jesus Christ. You just have to put your trust in Jesus, and now you're saved and secured, and that can never be taken away from you. That's right. Okay, well, I guess I can just grab my hell insurance, and then I can go live however I want. And Paul says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. That's chapter six because by no means is that what the gospel is. If you think the gospel is just cognitively believing that Jesus is savior, walking an aisle so you can grab some hell insurance and then go live how you want, you don't understand the gospel. Because Paul's gonna argue in chapter six that the gospel is not just receiving the forgiveness of Christ through his death, but you're also receiving the new life in Christ through his resurrection. You don't get one or the other, you get both. That's how the gospel works, like a, a chrysalis of a caterpillar going, turning into a butterfly. There is a constitutional change in the life of a Christian that you are changed forever. And you, the trajectory of your life will change because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so you have been saved to be set free. That's what Paul's gonna argue in Romans chapter six. But you can see the next question coming and going, oh, okay, I get it. So I put my trust in Jesus and it actually constitutionally changes me, changes me so I'll never sin again. I'll be like the guys in the free speech area of my college campus who say that they never sin anymore. Oh, that's how it works. And Paul goes, no, 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 I'm so glad you asked. That's not how it works. Welcome to Romans chapter seven. Because in Romans chapter seven, and let me ask you this, has anybody ever wondered, man, I put my trust in Jesus. Why am I still tempted to lust? I've put my trust in Jesus. Why am I still tempted towards doubt and despair? Why am I still tempted towards shame and guilt? I thought I was set free. And Paul is gonna show us, yes, chapters three through five, you have been set free from the penalty of sin. Chapter eight, you're one day gonna be set free from the very presence of sin. But the goal that Paul's gonna show us in chapter seven is right now you are currently being freed day by day from the very power of sin. And that is a process. That does not happen. Even though you are declared innocent overnight by trusting in Jesus, the process of looking more like Jesus is something that God wants to do in you day by day for the rest of your life. And it will be a struggle and it will be a battle. And as long as you're still on this earth and you're in this tent called human flesh, you will struggle to yield yourself from the power of your flesh to the power of the cross and the Holy Spirit who's at work in you. And then what Paul's gonna do is in chapter eight is gonna begin catapulting us forward. Because if you're going, okay, I've been set free from the penalty of sin. I'm being set free by the power of sin. Greater is he who's in me now than he's in the world or in my flesh. Is there ever a day coming when I'll actually be set free from sin altogether? And Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Again, chapter eight. He's gonna catapult us forward in an understanding that the day is coming when we will be set free from the bondage of this flesh. That day is coming and we long for it, creation longs for it. And so right now, in the meantime though, we struggle with the Spirit's help, but we can rest freely in the fact that our condemnation has been lifted and the Holy Spirit is transforming us as all part of the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross. And, and if you're reading this right, as you work your way through Romans eight, you're going, okay. And Paul's gonna return back to what he left off in chapter five with the idea that you and I are eternally secure, 
that no matter what happens in this life, he's got us. He will never let us go. And you go, why? How can you assure me that I I don't lose my salvation because of something that I've done, even still in this weakened state? And Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Welcome to chapter nine. Paul's gonna pull back the curtain of theology to let you know, kind kind of like in Oz, you're gonna pull it back. You're gonna find out what's been going on behind the scenes. And Paul's gonna argue that the reason you cannot lose your salvation is because you did not choose it. And you go, oh no, here comes the P word and it's coming, predestination, sovereign election as it's been called. Paul is gonna tell us in Romans chapter nine that in the greatest game of salvific Red Rover that's ever been played, you as the believer, you got to come over by his sheer grace to save you and redeem you. And let me just tell you this right now, and we're gonna get to eight, nine eventually, and we're gonna deal with all the hard questions that come in it, but let me just tell you right up front, you will never get Romans eight and nine if you do not first get Romans one through three. If you do not understand what it means to be spiritually dead, you will never understand why it's gotta be 100% God to come save you and redeem you. Paul is not writing Romans 8, 9 to trip you up and make you mad at God forever. He's writing it to put you on your knees and worship. Oh, how great is the grace of God that nothing can separate us once he has us. Now, the inevitable question that comes up in 8 and 9, if you're paying attention, I hear this all the time, is okay, if God has sovereignly chosen salvation and we, we really don't have a whole lot to do with that other than to receive it once he's get, given it to us, then the, the truth is, is then why should I go sharing my faith? If God's already chosen out there, why should I go share my faith? Why aren't we all just robots? Aren't we all just robots anyways? Paul says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Welcome to chapter 10. Because Paul is gonna tell you that God is not only the one who decrees the end, he also decrees the means. And in God's divine plan, he has chosen us as the redeemed ones of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the very vehicles that will go out and share and display the gospel to a lost and broken world so the elect can put their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is gonna quote both Isaiah and others by saying, how in the world can you Can somebody out there even believe in Jesus Christ if they don't hear about Jesus Christ? How can they hear about Jesus Christ if if they don't aren't preached to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how can somebody preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they're sent by God? And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so this beautiful picture that Paul is laying out of how the gospel works. And again, to a Jewish reader that's reading it, by the time you get to chapter 10, you're going, okay, so God has, his divine plan is, has brought about this salvation by his grace. He's chosen these folks that would come forward and receive this great gospel. We're going out to share it. Well, if there seems like there's one group out there that appears to not be chosen because they haven't put their faith in Jesus, it appears to be the Jews themselves. And so what about them? Has God forsaken his plan to his covenant people? And Paul's gonna say, I'm so glad you asked. Welcome to chapter 11. No, he hasn't, by no means. God still has a plan and his promises still hold true. He still has a remnant out there that he will bring to faith in Jesus Christ and is indeed doing so right now. And by the time you're done with chapter 11, you are on your face worshiping this amazing infinite God for who he is and what he's done. 11 chapters of Paul taking the gospel like a diamond and just turning that diamond chapter by chapter, showing you a different facet 
of how he saves and who he is and what he's links he's gone to to reach us and his plan of redemption for the ages, just turning that diamond. And by the end of chapter 11, he goes back though to the original argument of Rome is, okay, isn't this gospel going to produce the worst of citizens? And Paul again goes, I'm so glad you asked. Welcome to chapters 12 through 16. The movements you see in the book of Romans is the power of the gospel to save, the power of the gospel to sanctify, that is to set apart and make like Christ, and the power of the gospel to actually send us out into a broken and fallen world to display his message. And that's exactly what you see in 12 through 16. Paul is gonna show how the gospel relates to every areas of our lives. He's gonna show how the gospel relates to our relationship with God and worship, how our, the gospel relates to other believers in the church, how the gospel relates to uh, evil that's in the world, how the gospel relates to our neighbors that we come into contact with, how the gospel relates to, to our being under civil government, how the gospel relates to bringing the message to the ends of the earth and the nations. This is the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the reason why Paul says again in chapter one, verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe, both to the Jew and to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God has been manifested to us. So we don't have to go digging through dumpsters to try to find a lesser form of righteousness to stand in God's presence. He brought the perfect righteousness to us in Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. That's Romans 1 through 16. That's the next year and a half. I hope you're ready for that. Now, before we hang up here this morning, I wanna, I wanna do a little dive here into the opening words of Romans because it's here that we are gonna see some of the most beautiful foundations of this gospel, starting in Romans chapter one. Romans one through seven. Here's the deal. I want you to start in Romans 1. Just start scanning. Tell me where is the first period that you see in a sentence. If you just start in verse 1 and start kind of scanning through, when is the first period, you grammar students? When does it show up? It's at the end of verse 7. In the Greek, this is the longest run-on sentence that you're going to find in the New Testament of Paul's letters. He would have failed grammar easily right here with this giant run-on sentence, yet within this long run-on sentence contains the entirety of the message of life. I'm going to give you seven quick tenets or seven quick facets here of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these seven verses. These seven verses, by the way, are usually the verses that we skip in our Bible reading because it's part of that intro. Hi, Paul, bondservant, Jesus Christ. Let's go on. Let's get to the meat, right? Oh, there is some gold in these verses right here. Listen to this. The first thing that I want you to see is the messenger of the gospel. You can write down the word messenger by verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says right out of the gate, as a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am not somebody right now coming on my own authority. I am rather coming on behalf of God, the father who has sent me. In fact, the word apostle means sent one. And so Paul says, I have been sent by God with a message, which is the letter of Romans. And Paul says, this message that I'm giving you, the entire book of Romans is not my idea. This idea of Romans came from the mind of God. And I am just a deliverer. I am a messenger who's come to bring this. And I am not, I am not under force to do this. I am a bondservant. Nobody manipulated me to come send this message. 
I am compelled to give it because of how true and how powerful it is. In verse two, you can write the word source. We're gonna see the source of the gospel. So in other words, if Paul did not make up this gospel, then where did it originate from? And you see this in verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, meaning this is the good news of Jesus, the, the salvation that is the result of grace and not works. This is not a new idea. This is not a New Testament idea. This is not a foreign idea. To a Jewish reader reading this, Paul didn't come with some new religion that came in here. This idea of a gospel of grace that saves by the power of God and not by our works is one that finds its roots all the way in the Old Testament. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when all the wheels fell off in the garden, God made a promise that one day he would send a savior to redeem us from our sin. And Paul is saying right here in verse two, this message of the gospel that, that he is delivering about Jesus Christ is not a new idea, but is actually the fulfillment of all those promises made starting in the very book of Genesis. In verses three and four, you can write the word focus. We're gonna look at the focus of the gospel. Paul says concerning his son, this gospel is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness. And he goes on to say, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the focus of the gospel. He's the focus of this good news. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one from the line of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He is a hundred. What he's showing in that is Jesus is a hundred percent man, born of the flesh. He's a hundred percent man. But he also said in that same text, he is also a hundred percent divine. He is the, not just the son of David, he is the son of God. He is not like us in that he does not have sin, but he is also um, not a, a theophany here. He is 100% God, 100% man. That phrase, the spirit of holiness, is the title from the Old Testament referring to Jesus as his deity. He is both man and he is both God. And so this is who he's saying, Jesus is the focus of the gospel, the God, man, Messiah, who has come to take away our sin. And in verse four as well, tucked within there, you also see the proof that he is this Messiah. You can write the word proof also by verse four. When he says in the midst of all that, this Jesus, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. How do we know? that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that the Old Testament told us was gonna come for us. How do we know it's Jesus? The proof is that he came up out of a grave. He not only died for our sin on the cross, but he rose for the newness of life for us. He is not in that grave right now. The fact that the tomb in Jerusalem is still empty today is not because his body was stolen or he was resuscitated or there's some twin that was put in there. As so many skeptics have said, the reason there's not a body in that tomb is because Jesus conquered the grave, validating the fact that he is the Messiah, the only one worthy to take away our sins and give us his righteousness. And it ultimately accomplishes what? I want you to write next to verse five, the purpose of the gospel. This is why Jesus came out of the grave, according to verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship 
to bring about, and here it is, the obedience of faith. In other words, the point of the gospel was to produce in us what we could not produce ourselves, to give us an obedience to God that does not come through law, but is driven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, producing in us a new heart that transforms us with a new life. This was the whole purpose, by the way, of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 was that there was a day coming that God would take his law. It would no longer be written on external stones that we'd have to look at and try to obey, but he would actually take that law and embed it in our hearts. Where for the first time, this this obedience to Christ wasn't a have to, it was now a get to. It wasn't duty, but it was made into delight because we no longer derive our righteousness from ourselves, but we derive it from the one who worked on our behalf. And now everything is a response unto that. And then finally, or the next two here, and in, in, uh, at, uh, at the end of verse five, I want you to write the word recipients. Who did this gospel go to? Who is this gospel for? And we're gonna see the recipients of the gospel. The gospel here in verse five, he tells us is for the sake of his name among all the Jews. Is that what that says? No, that's not what that says. Amongst all the nations, Jew and Gentile. This gospel is for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ from the Jew in Jerusalem to the heathen in Dallas and everything in between, whoever so believes upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And then lastly, I want you to write results. There next to verse six and seven. What are the results of the gospel? And you see this when Jesus, when Paul says about Jesus, this gospel includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ to those in Rome who are, and listen to these three words here, loved, called, and saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three terms that Paul calls those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Called, loved, and saints. And these are important terms. Called, those chosen by the predetermined plan of God who have been brought forth into salvation now, secured in Jesus Christ forever. That's who you are. You are secured in his calling, he who called you. But not only that, you are loved. God's motivation, one of them, in, in calling us to himself before the foundations of the earth were ever laid is so that we could experience the full love of Jesus Christ. To know that he is pleased with you, not on the basis of your own performance, but on the basis of his son, God loves you with an everlasting love. Not only that, but you are now saints. Now, it's important to know, this is not the religious version of the word saint that has been hijacked in our culture. To to speak of somebody that's got some exemplary life and has performed two post-mortem miracles. That is nowhere in the Bible. The word saint there is the word hagios, which means holy one. And it's speaking to the result of what has happened to you since you put your faith in Jesus and received his righteousness. That you is speaking to your present position in Christ as you are clothed in his holiness and righteousness. Innocent forever. That is the good news that Jesus has accomplished for us. 
is that we are called, we are loved, and we are made holy all by his grace. Church, do you see the good news? This is what Paul is speaking to here. These seven verses, seven verses, by the way, which we tend to skip in our little devotion times, all that gold packed in there, all those facets of the gospel that Paul is about to unpack over the next year and a half for us, over these 16 chapters, that in the that all in it, as we dig further, we'll experience the richness of what Christ has given. Can I just say this as we close? If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, oh, may I invite you to do so now. May I invite you to do so now. You don't have to go digging through dumpsters to try to derive a lesser form of righteousness so that you can feel like you stand worthy in the presence of God. No, there is a pure form of righteousness that is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can receive that righteousness right now by trusting in his death and resurrection for you, repenting of your sin and giving your life over to him. And you can have the promise that you are sealed and secured in that righteousness forever and never taken away. I invite you to do so because I promise you, if you hang in there with us over this next year and a half, the Lord's going to get you there. Might as well go ahead and do it on the front end right now. Give it to him and rest in his love. For all of us who are going to continue in this journey, I hope you'll hang with us over this next year and a half as we take that diamond and we turn it and we just show each facet. And as we do so, we're going to begin next week by looking, starting in verse eight, at the reason why Paul actually wrote this letter because of why he wanted to bring the gospel to Rome and why he wasn't afraid to do so. And in doing so, we are going to find our encouragement as Christians to be even more bold with this gospel in the day and age that we live. So would you pray with me now? Let's pray for his glory and our good in this text. Father, we thank you for the beauty that the book of Romans is, the beauty that your scripture is, that God, you have not remained silent on our sin. You haven't just left us to our own demise knowing that there's nothing in and of ourselves that we could do to be saved and cleansed. But God, you have found a way by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to hold fast to that good news. Open our eyes as we enter in this study together to show us the power of yourself to save by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory and certainly for our good as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.